This is The Water Cooler. I'm your host, Joseph Harper. Each show, we bring you real and imagined tales told by people from all walks of life. Our theme this episode is holiday, tales of escape. We all chase the break, the respite, the recess, the vacation, the space and freedom to be temporarily away from our lives. When you're out on holiday, you have a unique perspective on the world. So what happens when the escape isn't quite what you expected? We've got four intriguing stories for you today, including a perilous car journey in the Himalayas, an East Coast turf war between 10-year-old kids, what it's like to feel more at home when you're away, and wild times in Samoa with Dad. Quick note, these stories were told live, and language and themes may not be for everyone. Our speaker Sam Sneddon is an actor, director and producer, and the beloved co-general manager of the Basement Theatre in Auckland. While he does not really like cats, he finds them tolerable. Here's Sam's story. I'm a quite an anxious person. Um, I have uh, sleepless nights and I worry about things that I can't control. And um, I find travel very stressful. Like I find going anywhere quite stressful because it, it generally means that I'll be going somewhere unfamiliar and that my sleep there will be quite fitful and full of dreams of home. Um, in spite of that, I still hold true to the idea that um, travel is good for me, that there's repeated exposure to environments that I find stressful will somehow inoculate me against the stress that they cause. <laughs> so in essence, I go on holiday so sometimes, someday, I'll be able to enjoy going on holiday. <laughs> that was pretty good, but I kind of fucked up the punchline. Um, so in 2009, I decided to go to India for five weeks. Um, I'd be traveling with a friend from high school his sister, and my new girlfriend, Andy. So at that stage, we'd been dating about three months. And almost immediately, I realised that I was way, way, way out of my depth, <laughs> comfort-wise. <laughs> my friend um, who I was with had been to India three times, and he was really looking to push the envelope and kind of, like, take advantage of all the sort of, like, ready accessibility of vices in India. And I was just like, can we just chill the fuck out? I was just trying to find, like... A sort of equilibrium. I mean, he was always saying that you really have to follow your instincts in India. And while that was no doubt true for him, um, it made no sense for me because my instincts were just like, run, go home, what the fuck are you doing here? Go home immediately. <laughs> so while we had no set itinerary really for the trip, there were two things that we wanted to do. And one was to be in Varanasi for a solar eclipse. Um, and the second was to visit the so-called Valley of the Flowers which is home to more than 500 different species of wildflowers, some of which are like endemic and unique to the valley. Varanasi is quite easy to achieve. It's at sea level. There's a railway station right there. You just get on a train, and depending where you are, you know, between 4 and 46 incredibly sweaty hours later, you arrive. It's like really easy. But getting to the Valley of the Flowers is a bit trickier. Um, this is partly because it's very isolated, uh, and it's mostly because it's in the fucking Himalayas. Um, it is a 500-kilometre drive from Delhi and then a 17-kilometre trek from the base of the mountain on foot um, to the valley itself. And it rises to about... I was reading it the other day. What is it? It's high. It's really high. <laughs> um, so while the trek wasn't causing me any worries, um, the drive had me on edge, and there was quite a good reason for that. Uh, in India, I should say at this point, in India... Faith permeates every aspect of daily life. Um, 
walking around in the early morning, you're treated to like innumerable shop um, shopkeepers who are um, doing their daily devotion for a healthy trade or people touching a cow in the street and then blessing themselves. And we were there during the pilgrimage season and everywhere you looked, there are devotees, people who have traveled sometimes thousands of kilometers to go to a particular temple or to get water from the Ganges that they would then take home to their village and use for their daily devotionals for the rest of the year. Now I say at this point, because Indian driving is the best example of the depth of their faith. <laughs> they really drive like they know they will be reincarnated. <laughs> so it was with quite a lot of trepidation that I approached this particular part of the trip, and this was causing some real fractures in the group dynamic. Uh, my friend at, by this point had had enough of my hesitation, and it really came to a head as we stood by the road trying to find a lift. Um, a car offered to take us, it had some other people in it, and I refused to go with him, which led to a screaming match between me and him by the side of the road. Um, and eventually we did find a car and we got underway, but because of the tension, no one in the group spoke for a couple of hours. So while the driver maintained the usual breakneck speed and the cliffs on the side of the road became more and more perilous, I, the, the road itself didn't feel too treacherous. And as we climbed the mountain in silence, um, I actually found myself starting to relax. Uh, the night before the trip, I hadn't slept, and the tension and the motion of the car and the relief that I wasn't dead, um, <laughs> it started to kind of lull me into a sort of half-awake state. And I started to have the same sensation that I have while watching a film and dozing, where what you receive is images, but the plot becomes confused. You see trucks passing, people walking, the edge of a cliff, trees. And it was at this state where I saw three men sitting on the bench by the side of the road. And as I watched them, they all stood up simultaneously and looked right ahead of us. And as I snapped my head round, just in time to see the car in front of us plunge over the edge of the cliff. So I was now fully awake. So we came to a halt and I jumped out of the car and we got to the edge of the cliff just in time to see the vehicle tumble to a stop. It had gone end over end and it had practically disintegrated. I saw something orange fluttering from one of the rocks like quite a distance below and I realized that it was a sari that had been partially unwrapped from its wearer during the crash. She looked as though she was sort of reclining on the rocks, like as if for a photo shoot. The road, like everywhere else in India, was packed with people and people were pouring out of their cars and down the side of the hill and our driver did the same. And the bodies of the dead were sort of passed up the hill on a kind of human chain and part, part, like just placed on the side of the road. Um, our driver returned about 30 minutes later, quite out of breath, understandably, and with blood all over his shirt. Um, Three persons dead, he said. Let's go. So we went. And as we passed where the bodies were laid out, I noticed that someone had survived. A child who, while clearly in shock seemed unhurt. I don't really remember the rest of the drive, but I did note that for about an hour the driver sort of like drove really, really carefully and like clicked his tongue at anybody who was like driving normally and then he just kind of got back to business. <laughs> um, so we arrived at this small town at the foot of the mountain. Now I, I say town because worst fucking place that I've ever been backward shithole Seems at this point probably a bit uncharitable. Um, we found a place to stay, and I went to our respective rooms, and I 
I asked my new girlfriend what we should do. Just keep going, she said. I don't think there's anything else we can do. I was so grateful for her in that moment. Yeah, to have her there, and I'm still grateful, and she's still there. So the next day we start up the mountain. Now the Valley of the Flowers is on the way to Hemkund, which is a holy site of pilgrimage for Sikhs. And during the pilgrimage season, over 150,000 people climb the mountain. And it is, it is a fucking mountain. Like, it's a mountain climb. You're climbing a mountain. <laughs> Although there are a number of options. Like, you can walk it, like most people do, or you can be carried on the back of somebody else. This is a true story. Or you can sit in a sedan chair and have six people carry you up the mountain. This really happened. They're Tibetans mostly, and they are like this big and just nuggets of muscle. So we got to the valley the next day, and it was, it was really serene. Except the monsoon was late that year, so the valley wasn't in bloom. So instead of the valley of the flowers, it was just a valley. Um, but it really was undeniably beautiful, and... We were the only ones there. And it was the only time in five weeks that we were by ourselves. Of course, we still had to get back down the trail to the village and then down the mountain to sea level. And the thought of that had been frankly terrifying in light of what had happened. But we made it about halfway down to a village. And I found a chemist who sold me some Valium over the counter. And I have to say the rest of the trip was pretty pleasant. So since then, um, me and Andy have been to Egypt, uh, and they had a revolution while we were there. Um, and then next month, we're going to South Africa. And I can't wait to see what civil unrest will be waiting for us when we land. Um, they've had protesting students being shot with rubber bullets and tear gassed recently, so it's pretty exciting. I still find travel really stressful. I still worry. But I also still cling to the idea that this trip will be the one to chill me out. Okay, maybe not this one, maybe the next one. That's it. Big thanks to Sam for sharing his story. Our speaker, Natalie Maria Clark, is an enthusiastic tea drinker and also likes words, humans and sunshine. A noted dancing choreographer, she has toured the country with her contemporary dance theatre shows. Here's Natalie's story. I love being away. I dislike returning. Um, my last trip away was to Melbourne six weeks ago. I flew home overnight and arrived at 5.30am, um, a time at which, unsurprisingly, no one was keen to pick me up from the airport. And besides, I think I've exhausted my quota of favours. <laughs> And actually, a friend of mine last time when I asked for a ride from, the face, uh, from Facebook was like, no, you, you, go to fa- you go away too much and you've asked for too many rides. So that was a bit um, sad. <laughs> so anyway, I, I ended up catching a shuttle back to my flat this time. And um, there were two tourists in the seat in front of me and they were pointing at like every building and every tree and everything. And I kind of um, was envious of their eyes looking on all this stuff that I was really familiar with as if it was, you know, it was the first time they were seeing it. 
Um, as the shuttle approached the New North Road and Bond Street intersections, this police car came whirring out in front of us and raced ahead, so of course we let it pass and then the shuttle continued on. Um, and then actually it had just stopped about 300 metres down the road and as we drove past, there was um, three more police cars there and I noticed that there was a man about my age on the other side of the rails of the bridge um, and he was looking down to the drop down to the motorway and he didn't look distraught or panicked. Um, he kind of looked quietly content and I just remember feeling really overwhelmed with the heaviness of that situation and of being home and just really wanting to be somewhere else. I don't know exactly why, but I have always, since I can remember, felt more at home when I am away from home. It doesn't matter where home is or how good things are at home. It doesn't matter either where away is or what has called me to that place. There's just something about being in a different space that seems to always trump the familiarity of that which is familiar. Perhaps it's because I'm born under an air sign that I am such a floater. When I think back on my life, my mind tends to segment my memories um, according to certain places that I've been existing in at any given time. And the in-between times seem to kind of linger murkily as void spaces. I don't like being in the same place for long. It makes me feel constricted. I don't stay in flats for long. I work jobs at a flexible or fixed term or contract. And even within a single day, I tend to be jumping about from place to place. And I don't even stay with people for long. Mostly they seem to come and go out of my life, or maybe it's me doing that. But either way, I'm okay with this scenario. I'm not at all one of those people who has an attachment to my own bed either. I love sleeping on couches and mattresses and, and different bedrooms and other people's beds and floors and tents and hostels, <laughs> doesn't everyone, um, and shared spaces. There's just something about like waking up, um, you know, like on a couch in the aftermath of a party or in a tent in the middle of a forest or like in a foreign city and all the noises of that city are kind of like rapping on the window at you. And I love how you're sort of immediately hurtled into the present moment that you're inhabiting. And everything suddenly feels full of possibility because it's so new. When I wake up in a familiar place, in a place that's imbued with the label of mine, the feeling of it is inherent and routine and expected and there's no aliveness because everything is automatic and my morning ritual is unconsidered or sometimes it's even exactly predetermined. But when I sleep somewhere new, I'm totally embedded within the scene in which I awake, and so I feel more conscious of my own existence, which I suppose gives me a greater appreciation for it. I also have no issue with travel. <laughs> in fact, I especially love long-distance flights, long walks and drives. I love the sense of going somewhere. I don't mind sleeping upright in an economy class seat, and actually, if you like turn around in the seat and sort of lean your front of your body against the back of the seat, that's a really good technique. Um, I love the ritual of plain food, everyone hates it, I love it, <laughs> and I love safety briefings, and most of all, <laughs> just because you know, like, it's, like, so performative, um, <laughs> it's great, <laughs> um, and most of all, I just love the opportunity to sit down and be somewhere for several hours, which is a rare thing in my life and probably most people's lives, and still one of the most spectacular sights that I've ever seen um, was... Uh, when I was flying from Melbourne to Sydney and I saw this thunderstorm. I was in the window seat of a plane. 
and I saw this thunderstorm and it was like these crazy hyper pink and silver colours and we were kind of above it so we saw all the shapes of the lightning and everything and it was amazing and the people beside me were like sleeping and watching movies and shit and I was like, guys, there's a thing, nature's doing things. <laughs> I wonder if part of the reason why I don't have a strong attachment to the idea of home is because we moved around so much when I was growing up. I grew up in the Waikato mostly but not entirely in Cambridge. And in the last few years of high school, we were on a lifestyle block just outside of town. Although we stayed in the same area, um, we didn't live in the same house for more than a couple of years, and often it was less than that. My parents were constantly upgrading and then selling houses with the aim of expanding their $10,000 cash into a $1 million property asset, which they managed to do, but it was all for little gain in the end because they divorced when I left home, and while they um, were arguing over how to split the combined worth, the recession hit, and the property declined by about half. <laughs> so, good on them. <laughs> Okay. Um, additionally, I was fortunate enough that my family often went on holidays. Um, nothing major, just like the token middle-class New Zealander. Um, trips to Australia and certain Pacific Islands. But we did travel quite a lot within New Zealand, um, like more than the average person, I'd like to think. We had family down south in a tiny, tiny little town called Edendale, which had like three to 400 people somewhere in there in Vicargal and Gore. So you can just imagine what it's like. Um, and... While that destination wasn't really great, what was great was that we used to drive to and from it. So we'd drive like down one side of the country and then back up the other. So I've pretty much seen like everywhere in the South Island and the bottom half of the North Island, which is cool. Um, we also frequently took shorter trips to Tauranga, Taupo, Waihe, Tarawera, things like that. And I was even, even lucky enough to accompany my parents on their trip around Northland for their honeymoon. Lucky them, I was five. <laughs> <laughs> I think the deal was that Nana was like, I'll look after one child, but not two of them. And they were like, okay, well, you have the baby. <laughs> we'll take the five-year-old. Um, luckily, my teacher, Miss Sela, God bless her, she loaded me up with books, so I was well occupied. <laughs> anyway, I take pride in the fact that I know New Zealand like the back of my hand. I've been to more or less every corner of it. Um, and so this kind of frequent roaming that was happening throughout my childhood certainly is kind of an, in an inherent part of me in my life. When I was freshly 14, my family went on a holiday to Fiji. I bought some new denim shorts, some cheap number from an Easy Buy catalogue, and when they arrived in the post, I of course tried them on. And looking at my gangly teenage legs, my mum said to me, <laughs> this is the weirdest thing, she said to me, I'll be surprised if you don't have your first kiss during this holiday. <laughs> And it seemed really strange at the time, and it still does, and I'm like, um, I don't know why she said it. It was really incongruous to the picture I had of going to Fiji, which is like, you know, snorkeling and like becoming sick on mango and pineapple and like just lying on the beach all day. Um, and it was like she'd set this sort of very normal expectation of me that I was totally oblivious to and hadn't yet fulfilled. <laughs> And I was quite like, as when I was young, probably now still, but like a bit more chilled out now, I was like, if someone expected something of me, like I had to achieve it. So I felt really <laughs> panicky and anxious about the fact that she had said this to me. <laughs> and I had a similar feeling the year before when I had turned 13 and my granddad wrote in my card, now you can begin dating. And I was so confused. I was like, what? A 13 and 14, like the ages at which you have to begin dating and kissing people? Like, why hadn't society told me about this? 
Um, so on holiday in Fiji in 2005, I did not have my first kiss. I failed. <laughs> failed my assignment. Um, but I did make good friends with a group of three Kiwi boys, one of which I definitely had a crush on, not reciprocated, and one of which definitely had a crush on me, also not reciprocated. <laughs> Awkward love triangle. Um, and then at the end of the holiday, all I had was terrible tan lines and a really overhanging sense of disappointing failure. <laughs> But don't fear, there's a happy ending to the story. <laughs> so three months later, I went away again. This time I went to a Hopi beach with um, a family friend that I'd known since my own existence. Our mums were pregnant together. Um, <laughs> and so Jessica's parents pretty much gave us free reign. Um, or maybe they were just more concerned with enjoying their own holiday that they decided to take a holiday from parenting. They explicitly gave us no curfew because they, and I quote, trusted us to be responsible. And they pretty much allowed us to just roam around the holiday camp and the beach and do whatever the heck we liked, which was great. Um, so we met two boys holidaying from Wellington. And together, the four of us basically spent the week epitomising all the cliches of our adolescence. We built illegal campfires on the beach. We got drunk off like the leftover wine in the bottom of the bottle and the forgotten beers in the bottom of almost empty boxes. And we went skinny dipping in the metallic blue cyan moonlight, which was gorgeous. Really was that cliche. <laughs> and so, of course, one night on a Hobie Beach in January 2006, somewhere around 1am, wearing the same denim shorts that had become the symbol of my failure in Fiji, <laughs> I had my first kiss. And I just remember sort of reveling like, in the immense energy and powerfulness of my youth, not just because of the kiss, but like the whole scenario. Everything just seemed amazing, like this ability to create possibility and to connect with strangers in a really beautiful environment. And it all seemed so far away from the reality that I knew of home, which was boring little townhouse gridded Cambridge with, you know, all its kind of British attitudes. And I just remember the in independence being absolutely intoxicating. Being away, the subsequent flourish of freedom and being intimately connected to other humans became intertwined in my psyche. It was like a little perfect trifecta that 10 years later still seems quintessential to my happiness. Holidays have continued to represent and bring about an insatiable pursuit for both connection and freedom. Maybe it's because I do feel most like myself when I'm away that holidays always seem to result, often, not always, <laughs> seem to result in amorous trysts. Both my romantic and platonic connections with people seem to be fleeting, brief, experiential and uprooted, just like my sense of home is. People themselves have become as much a place for escape as the physical spaces in which I meet them. New people, fleeting moments and foreign places, even if they are encountered only for a short time, feel more like home than any place that I've ever lived. And I'm pretty sure that this all comes back to the sort of beautiful immediacy of that which isn't routine and that which isn't familiar. Last year I was um, working on a show that was touring and one of the girls on the show, um, she said a comment that seemed really strange to me. She said she felt transient, that her job just made her feel really transient. And it was odd because that sort of thing doesn't bother me and in fact I think I need it to stop becoming complacent. Things that I ordinarily deem too risky feel as though they have no consequences when I'm on holiday. Well, not even on holiday, just away. Or sometimes I feel like they have greater consequence, more impact and more influence. When I'm away, I find the most honest version of myself because I have no predetermined attachment to the spaces or the people surrounding me. 
I'm writing on a new page with every decision and interaction I have. And therefore, when I'm away, everything feels good, everything feels like a success, everything is worth celebrating. And even if I feel darker in my mind, when I'm away, this becomes a kind of complex and beautiful state of mind that I revel in the depth and the humanness of. Transience makes me feel unrestricted, which in turn empowers me. When I'm at home, I become obsessed with planning and I'm easily upset when things don't unfold how I expect. I fail to notice the details because I already know them or I think that I do, and they are too familiar to deserve my attention. Which is a shame because beauty is always found in small details. Sometimes I catch myself in this mind space and then I'll suddenly become aware of a house that I've lived across the road for for months or something like that. And even, like, if you just go down a street that's, like, one street over from a street you travel down all the time, that tiny horizontal shift just never fails to amaze me how it kind of leaves you feeling like a tourist in your own city. And I think that that is it. To explore home as if you're on holiday. To think of returning not as coming back to something old, but instead as moving on to the next segment in time. To revel in the newness that you feel when you hone in on the details of moments people and places, and to look at the familiar with new eyes. I think that's where happiness is. Thanks to Natalie for sharing her story. Our speaker Eli Kent is a writer, actor and director in theatre and film with a Masters in Creative Writing from Victoria University. Eli's biggest hobby is collecting bad habits. Here's Eli's story. I think I was about 10 and uh, the holidays were approaching, the end of the year, and my mum got really paranoid because I was terrible at swimming, um, that I would just drown. Uh, I, could, I would like doggy paddle. Um, do you know, is that a normal thing or is that just something that I... Doggy paddling? I don't know. Um, yeah, and, and that's what I would call it. I guess everyone calls it that. Um, and and uh, I had one leg shorter than the other, so I'm just like a sort of just mental, I don't go anywhere in the water. I just kind of, and I, don't, I didn't know how to float then either. Um, I was pretty bad. But I could, you know, I could get places eventually. Uh, I, I, but she was just terrified that if I went out on the surf, I would just immediately just go under and that would be it. So she took me to the Boys and Girls Institute in, um, in Wellington, the BGI. Uh, it's a, it's a bunch of swimming pools or something. Um, where they teach kids to swim. And uh, I just remember being like, yay, hi, how old are 10-year-olds? I'm not sure. But uh, <laughs> the height of the reception desk, as she was explaining to the receptionist how bad I was, <laughs> um, going like, uh, you don't understand. <laughs> He's, look, like, you could put him, like, look, I know he looks like he should be able to be at this level, but don't, like, he's really bad. <laughs> uh, so just don't underestimate how bad he is. <laughs> and I was kind of on board with it because she'd convinced me I was terrible as well, going like, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of. And then so the, the day arrived and she dropped me off and she didn't like, she sort of just left me with the instructor, instructor and left. And this guy looked at me and was like, oh, hey, buddy. And then kind of started talking to me. He was sort of surprised and he started talking to me kind of like I was, uh, like I was a baby, like very sort of patronizingly. <laughs> And I remember being a little confused by that. And then he was like, yeah, come with me. And then he took me through, into, like, past the big pool. We were kind of walking down from the deep end to the shallower end of the big pool, 
past these like groups who I can only imagine were called like the dolphins and the sharks. <laughs> and then he took me into this back room with this pool which was like this, was like two, is it two feet deep? It just filled to the brim with toddlers. Uh, and I was like, this isn't for me, but okay. Uh, and then handed me off to this woman who was equally confused. But again, I was starting to figure out that they must think that I was sort of mentally disabled or something. So they didn't want to say anything about it. They didn't want to offend anyone. And so they, everyone was just playing along. She went, yeah, sure, get in. And it was me and kids half my size who could barely, probably just learned to walk. And other people looking at me and laughing and me being too polite to, 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 to say anything and thinking, and also like a part of me, because mama drilled it into me, a part of me was like, maybe I need this. <laughs> and, then, and, then she, and then this woman was like, okay, everyone, right, we'll get your flipper boards. And then she like, was guiding the other kids across the pool. It was like, like from like there to there, like, like four meters or something. And, and then she kind of did it to me as well. And it sort of took like two seconds because I was just walking. <laughs> and then she's like, all right, and now we're gonna get used to having our heads underwater. And so she like went down the line and the whole time she was looking at me like, when, when I get to, what am I gonna do when I get down? And there was this, this little plastic chair that was under the water. And she would sort of dunk the kids. And she finally, she got to me and she sort of just went through with it. Like she, I, she didn't know, she was like going on, like running on autopilot, sort of got me and sort of dunked me. And I just sat on the chair and the water just <laughs> it came up to my nipples. So, I don't remember how I escaped. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I, have a, I have this feeling that this is the same summer, because I remember being also 10, but then I thought maybe, I just, all my, maybe I'm just 10 in all my memories, because I can't <laughs> imagine going back that far. But My family used to go to this place called Blue Bay, Blue Bay Motor Camp in Mahia, which was this huge campground um, like in the shade of all, a bunch of pine trees. It was like paradise in my memory. It's amazing. Um, right by the beach. Um, it's not there anymore because a, this property developer brought, uh, bought it and turned it into a bunch of condos and batches and stuff. Well, no, he didn't. He wanted to. He, I don't know if it was a he. It was, they wanted to. Um, and they think they built one and then some anonymous locals just burned it down and it's just been sitting there. <laughs> the, this under, undeveloped land has been sitting there ever since and no one can like holiday on it or anything or, you know. Um, anyway, that's another story. Um, but we would go there with these family friends and we'd uh, create this big uh, group of families with this big sort of tent city all, all situated around a, a hub where we would have uh, group dinners together and all the kids at night would get together and we all knew each other really well and I still know a lot of, a lot of some of them. A lot of some of them? Um, and and uh, we would play Spotlight and, at night time and all that sort of stuff and it was great. Um, and they were, so of the kids that were around my age that I would hang out with, um, uh, George and his younger brother Henry from one family, and then Tom, uh, who was a year older than me and George, uh, his younger brother Ben. And then that, th both those guys had two older brothers, uh, Jack and, and Jake, who would have been about 15. And then also on holiday would have been my sister, who's about five years older than me, and her boyfriend Nick, who I remember was really cool and was really into Jimi Hendrix and had dreads and could play the guitar with his teeth. And we all thought he was awesome. Um, <laughs> uh, and 
Yeah, so George Henry, Tom, Ben and I, we, uh, we decided one day we made a fort in one of the valleys of the sand dunes. We made, we just like kind of knocked up this fort. Like it wasn't a big thing. We weren't like playing. We were just like, oh, let's build a fort. And then the next day we came back and the, just like the valley over on the other side of the dune was this, uh, the, these other kids had built another fort and they'd used some of our driftwood, thus compromising the structural integrity of our fort. <laughs> and so we like squared off with them. And I remember the, the, the biggest, like, this is, it might just be because I'm filtering this memory through, like, a haze of, like, uh, more, like, afternoon cartoons and stuff. But my memory is that, like, the group were, like, the, the nigger version of us. They were, like, there were exactly five of them and they were all our, like, evil counterparts. Or maybe we were the evil counterparts. But it was, like, the rowdy rough boys to the Powerpuff Girls or the, 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 the I think they're called, like, the Psycho Rangers. But um, and my 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 counterpart was 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 I, I, in my memory is wearing a bandana like Josh Brolin from The Goonies, um, if anyone or Rambo I guess. But in me it's, like, it's Josh Brolin from The Goonies, um, and he was called Kyle in my memory. It's probably completely incorrect. But um, anyway, so we we confronted them about it, and we and and we sort of had this standoff, and then we decided that we were going to come back kind of at midday, and, like, this was decided, both groups decided we were going to have a battle, like, we were going to fight and it, over the turf, and, um, but we had to go away and kind of prepare, and so we went, and we, we, we all, like, found driftwood and stuff, and we were like, yeah, and I was like, cool, and, I, like, some people would, like, had the big log, like, they were going, like, Gimli style, but I was like, no, I'm going to be a ninja, and I had little driftwood pieces, um, <laughs> that would not have been effective, but, um, <laughs> And, and then, and then, but then, two of the, the Henry and Ben, the two younger guys, they they were kind of thinking really logically about the thing. They're like, "Well, if we want to win, we should get the older boys, the fourteen, fifteen year olds, to come and and help us win the fight and just beat up these other kids." And I was like, "Okay, I feel like if we're the good guys, they should be like at least equal odds. And if we have, but sure, and, you know, the other guys kind of wanted to win more than they wanted to tell a good story. We were like, okay." Uh, it was, you know, we, I guess we voted, we didn't really vote, but it was decided, the group decided we were going to go get these other guys, and we went and got them, and they were, um, they were really keen uh, to, um, uh, to, to, to help, because I think watching a bunch of, like, six to ten-year-olds wage war against each other would have sounded like the perfect afternoon's entertainment to them. <laughs> Um, yeah, so with our now uh, sizable gang of, of little warriors, we, we, we met our foes once more atop the sand dune, separating the two forts, and um, I, I, there was this standoff. I remember it being kind of, uh, yeah, the, the sun high in the sky and us kind of, oh, what do we do? We're going to, everyone we sort of met, and then no one really knew what the next step was and how to... <laughs> how to push it forward. And so we just sort of started yelling stuff at each other and being like, well, you, meh, and then trying to, like, we knew we needed to get angry enough to break ranks and... Um, and it seemed like some kind of breaking point was, was getting closer and I was kind of, I'd, I'd angled myself, so I was adjacent to my, to, to Kyle with the bandana. And, um, and, but then at that point, the, the older kids started getting kind of nervous like through their uh, kind of we don't care attitude they started going like oh actually maybe seeing a bunch of little kids beat the shit out of each other won't be that much fun and maybe we'll be held accountable later on <laughs> for, for not intervening so they started saying stuff like oh I, uh, hey guys come on maybe we just chill out you know like um and <laughs> 
Um, and, I, and I was going, uh, part of me was like, no, don't, what are you doing? What are you doing? Um, you guys are supposed to be, you're supposed to, you're supposed to like stomp through and lay waste like the ants. You're not supposed to, like, what are you, what, why are you brokering peace? Um, and uh, uh, I could feel the other kids like on my side and also both sides, their lust for battle kind of waning. Um, and then my sister's boyfriend, Nick, uh, was like, hey, why are we even doing this? And you sort of, everyone sort of feel them starting to ask themselves that question. And I was getting desperate. And I was like, no, 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 this is not, something needs to happen how, now or, or, or nothing will happen. And then just my, like, Kyle, my counterpart, my nigger twin, he started to sort of, I saw, I saw him out of the corner of my eyes, like, edging round, like, slightly, like he was gonna, he's gonna attack my flank. <laughs> and I was like... It's strange, it's like, okay, like the feeling of crossing into danger is like uh, stepping from hot sand into cold water and, and you, have to, you have to go full speed at it, you can't, you can't go halfway. So I just, I jumped him and I grappled him and, and I had him like quite easily on the ground with his face and I was just pushing his face into the sand. <laughs> I was surprised by how easy it was and I think he was quite surprised too because I think he, he might have just been adjusting his footing. <laughs> And I was just grinding his face into the sand, and, and I'd kind of I'd assumed I'd hoped that the, the, this would be the moment that the front line would break and the carnage would commence. That, that, that others, uh, the others like me, had just been waiting for an excuse. And I, I thought that this, with this one kind of wild act, I had destroyed civilization. Um, but after about ten seconds of me just furiously <laughs> smushing this kid's face into the sand, I heard somebody call my name, and I looked up to see everyone just staring at me. Um, and nobody had moved and everybody was just they looked quite bewildered um, and then George was like Eli what are, you, what are you doing and I was like oh I stood up and then Kyle got up and sort of staggered, staggered to rejoin his friends and he looked quite rattled he had sand still all over his face and I just felt I remember feeling very cheated like everyone was looking at me like I was the one who'd killed the mood <laughs> and I didn't understand that, and um, there was no victory or defeat. There was tin spaghetti for lunch, and later on, beach cricket. <laughs> and of course, lots of swimming, doggy paddling mostly, provided, provided my mum was watching, and that I remembered at all times not to let myself go too deep. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much to Eli for sharing his story. Our speaker, Josephine Stewart Tefew, is a born and raised Auckland based actor, theatre maker, and writer. If she could have a dinner party with any five people, living or dead, they would be Patty Smith, Queen Elizabeth at age 24, just before she becomes Queen, Susan Sontag, Vivian Westwood, and Winona Ryder. Here's Josephine's story. Whenever I think about my dad, I think of the smell of real black leather jackets. I think of his beautiful smile, of how proud he is of who he is. I think of his epic cooking skills. I think of the many different lives he's led. Street gangs, jail, heroin addiction, a chef for Greenpeace Boat, an actor, he was one of Jake's mates and once were warriors, a house painter, alcoholism, a stint with Destiny's Church, four different children to four different women and counting, 
he's a five foot six Māori man, and in his day he was very, very handsome. He's still very handsome, but in his day he was like rock and roll gangster, good looking. So whenever people ask me about my dad, I always say, oh, my dad. My dad's a bit of a rolling stone. Um, okay, guys, so I just turned 18, and my dad suggests that we take this trip to Samoa because he's been dating this woman called Matara for a few years, and her family lives there. And he thought it would be this great idea if we took this family vacation. And I was really excited because I love traveling. I should have known that something was up when Dad called me to tell me that Matara had been arrested while buying our plane tickets because she was dancing naked in a public fountain. <laughs> but Dad being Dad was like, it's all good, we're still going on the trip. And I was like, well, that's fucking great because I had this romanticised idea of, like, Robert Louis Stevenson and, you know, long white beaches and resorts and coconuts and blah, 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 blah. So the day of the trip arrives and we're running really late and we're all separated on the plane. And as we start to approach Samoa, the air steward comes over to my dad and she says, your wife's not feeling very well, would you swap seats and come and sit with her? And dad does and we land. And then I see dad making his way down the aisle towards me and he says, Matara won't get off the plane, can you come and talk to her? So I walk down and I sit next to her and she's just staring sort of out the window, and I say, Matara, would you like to get off the plane? Silence. Like, okay. So I try again. Matara, do you want to get off the plane now? And then she goes, I can smell my mother's spirit. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> but her mother was still alive. Okay, her mother was still alive. This sort of shit happens to me all the time. Um, her mother was still alive. But I, like, I genuinely did not know what to do with this information. And I'm like, okay, man, that's cool. Do you want to get off and you can see her? And as soon as I say that, she just jumps up and she runs out the plane. And I follow her and the first thing that hits me is the heat. It just permeates everything. It's on my skin, it's in my hair, it's in my lungs. And I'm sort of getting a grip, and I see my dad patiently waiting in line for customs. And I look for Matara, and she's rolling on the tarmac and laughing. And I'm like, for fuck's sake. And I'm getting pissed off. And I walk over to her, and I'm like, just get up. We've got to go through customs. We've got to go through the airport. We're doing this fucking trip. And she just jumps up. She's like a greyhound. She just runs. She runs straight through customs. No one stamps her passport. No one seems to care, P.S. Everyone's just like, oh, yeah, there she goes. She's gone. So Dad and I, we go through, and we get to baggage claim, and Dad's like, can you please just get all our luggage? I'm going to go and find her. So I grab all of our luggage, and I go out the arrivals gate, and I suddenly feel scared and lost, and I don't know what's happening. And I'm, I'm young. I've just turned 18, and I'm about to cry for my mother like a little girl, and then my dad, he walks right in front of me and his head is bleeding and he looks really disoriented. And I'm like, oh my God, dad, what, what happened? Where, are you okay? And he said, Matara's trying to take her clothes off. 
I have to stop her. I tried to stop her and she hit me in the face. I have to go and find her. And he just keeps walking. As he walks away, I see in the distance Matara naked running through the airport and out the airport doors and she's just gone. And I'm like, oh fuck, what is happening? So I find my dad and we find Matara. She's dancing naked down the beach. She's fucking having a great time. She's in party mode. We put her onto the back of a truck and we take her to the local hospital. There's dust everywhere. There are no glass in the windows of this hospital. There's no doctor because the doctor's in fucking Japan. So there's all these nurses just sitting around her as she's writhing on this bed and they're all just nodding and they're like, yeah, she's possessed. It's fine, it's, she's possessed. And I was like, when do, okay, what, what do you mean possessed? And I'm in my first year of uni and I'm taking everything very seriously, you know. I'm like, no, she's not possessed, there's something really wrong. And anyway, we, just a little offshoot, we take her to the doctor's house, she's lying on his bed, she takes off her wedding ring and she's like, my dead ex-husband wants me to give this to you, to me, and I don't know what to do, so I just take it. Anyway, we, we send her to her family's home and my dad's friend very kindly puts us up for the night so we can have some respite because it was actually quite full on. So the next day, <laughs> oh, it was really intense. The next day we get up and we, uh, we go to her family house to visit her and her family's beautiful and there's like dozens of them and they're all just so welcoming and warm and I know they want to make me feel comfortable, so they sit me in this chair in the living room. But then they all sit on the floor in front of me. Everyone except me is on the floor. And I really want to join them, but I'm too polite to sort of move. I feel like maybe I'll offend someone. And they're all just looking up at me and smiling and staring at me and asking questions about what I do and where I'm from and about my family back home. And in my periphery, out the window, I can see Matara dancing topless on her dad's grave. Because I learned something in Samoa, they bury their family in, on their land, which I think is really beautiful. But she's dancing on her dad's grave. <laughs> no one, again, seems to really care or be bothered by this. And I'm sort of going, yeah, no, I'm studying, I'm doing a Bachelor of Arts, and she, <laughs> she's dancing naked. Okay, that's fine. Um, so dad comes and gets me. And he says, Matara's written a letter for us and she wants me to read it out loud. And I was like, okay, great. So we sit down and Dad opens it. And Matara's sitting there and Dad just freezes. And I sort of look over his shoulder and I see that the letter is addressed to Celine Dion and her husband, Renee. <laughs> and my dad starts reading and he changes Celine Dion's name to his name and Renee's name to my name as he reads it out loud. And he really commits. And Matara just sits there and she nods and she smiles. And then the letter just rambles and it gets crazier and crazier and it ends with Michael Jackson came to visit us but we weren't home. And I remember leaving there and saying to my dad, I really think you should get a doctor to see her. Something's really, really wrong. So my dad pays the money and we put her in the private hospital and she's sedated for a few days. So Dad and I get this little holiday together, 
and I get my beach, my resort, and white sand. But it's full my dad styles, which is like hitchhiking with this American tourist and his young girlfriend who's about my age. It's deeply strange and quite, yeah, that was bad news. I felt sorry for her, actually. Um, anyway, we get back. Matara leaves the hospital, and she's fine. And we just don't talk about it, which I find really strange. Unbeknownst to my dad, while we were away, I made a collect call to my mum. And I said, can you please book me a plane ticket because I, I want to come home now. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be on this trip. I want to come home. And my mum, being my mum, did. She booked me a ticket home. So I flew home early. And when I finally caught up with my dad, I sort of tried to talk to him about it. I was like, I think, you know, we probably should talk about what happened. Because that was fucked up. <laughs> and my dad sort of paused and he looked really sad. And then his black eyes started twinkling. And the sort of smile grew on his face and he goes... Oh, yeah, Samoa, eh? The heat's enough to make you go crazy. <laughs> Thanks to all our speakers, Sam, Natalie, Eli and Josephine, for sharing their stories. If you've got a great story to tell or would like to hear any of our previous episodes, visit us at thewatercooler.co.nz. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. This episode was produced by Roma Moreau, thanks to creator and director Sarah Finnegan-Walsh, and a special thanks to The Basement Theatre and The Wireless for their continued support. I'm your host, Joseph Harper. Join us again for more stories from The Water Cooler.